This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Welcome to the CyberTraps podcast. I'm Jethro Jones coming to you from Washington, host of the podcast, transformative principal and author of the book, School X, how to redesign your school for the people right in front of you. I am a former principal at all levels of K-12 education. Greetings everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney and educational consultant based in New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and the misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking with some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, cyber safety, and today, cybersecurity. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. Buoyancy Digital is proud to be the inaugural mission partner of the Cybertraps podcast, a digital advertising consultancy with an ethos. Buoyancy was founded by Scott Rabinowitz, who has been in the digital media space since 1997 and has overseen 300 million in youth safety compliant ad buys across all digital platforms. For IAB, Google, and Bing accredited brand and audience safe advertising sales solutions, media buying, and organizational training for publishers, please reach out to Scott and Buoyancy Digital, Buoyancy Digital at buoyancydigital.com or at Scott R Media on LinkedIn. Greetings, Jethro. Hello, Fred. Good to see you. Good to see you as well. It is a pleasure to be recording once more. I would like to take this opportunity to introduce our guest today. Verna Bila is an accomplished broad-spectrum security investigative and training professional with nearly 30 years of comprehensive large-scale leadership and operational experience in a diversified domestic and international fields. For the past 19 years, Verdon has been the president and CEO of Abila Security and Investigations, Inc., ASI, and has led ASI from a micro-business operating from his home to a successful multi-million dollar worldwide organization earning the Colorado Small Minority Business Person of the Year for 2012. Vern's core competencies are corporate complex litigation investigations, 
threat and vulnerability assessments, surveillance and counter surveillance operations, specialized critical incident training, logistical support, riot control tactics, overseas courier services, along with a wide variety of low and high threat protective details, pre-employment screening services. Mr. Avila is considered a subject matter expert by the US Department of State in VIP protection, critical infrastructure, national leadership, and diplomatic security for their anti-terrorism assistance program. Mr. Bila currently sits on the Colorado Board of Directors for the Association of Threat Assessment Professionals, ATAP, and has also been awarded diplomat diplomat status with the American Board for Certification in Homeland Security, certified in diplomatic and executive protection. He is also certified in Homeland Security at level three from the Global Society of Homeland and National Security Professionals and a member American Society for Industrialized Security. So, Vern, of the guests we've had, I think you are the one who has been most there and most done that. So, <laughs> welcome. That was all done last to week. Our, welcome to our show. <laughs> yeah, that was all accomplished last week. So, yeah. <laughs> been a busy week. Piece of cake. <laughs> I have uh, had a chance to talk with you over the years uh, through uh, actually one of our former guests, Glenn Lipson. Um, I came out, I think it was, was it to Denver for one of the ATAP conferences? And I co-presented with Glenn at that. So um, I've been along the edges of your world, but it's good to have a chance to talk in more detail. I think I'm in good company. I've been, I'm a big fan of the podcast. I've been uh, listening to your your speakers. And uh, what I think you and Jethro pull together is uh, bringing true leaders in the field and their expertise in cyber traps. And uh, so you're really I think touching people that I would never be able to talk to just because I deal more with the executive level and the C-suites trying to uh, develop security programs with them and trying to develop a more holistic approach to how you set up a security program, whether it's for a church or a school or a home. Uh, So kudos to you too. Well, unfortunately, these days we have to think about the security setups for virtually every location and organizations. So I would imagine your expertise is in a fair amount of demand these days. It gets a little busy, you know, here in Colorado, we've had a lot of things, you know, unfortunate things happen over the past week here. And in my, in my uh, 29 years now um, going into this, uh, usually after an incident like Boulder, uh, there's always, you know, within two days after that, there was another um, gentleman found in Atlanta in another supermarket, a public supermarket. And he, thankfully, somebody was aware and saw him. Uh, but the unfortunate part is he went to the store and he didn't necessarily call 911. And what that does is delay the response by going to somebody that may take you seriously or may take and may not take you seriously. And in schools, uh, we've been teaching school programs since 2007. That has been something that we've had to change a lot of people's minds. And uh, Dr. Lipson and I, he's, he's normally on my uh, multidisciplinary threat management team. And part of our job is persuading people of changing their policies. Um, you know, for instance, in schools, when we first started doing this, a lot of teachers were not allowed to call 911. They had to call the principal. The principal had to call an administrator. And by then, you know, you, you're, you're killing what, Jethro, you're the expert here in schools. How many, how many principals and administrators in the uh, campus every minute of the day? So we yeah. had to change people's minds and make them understand 
what industry best practice is. Well, and the it's it's super scary for any of this stuff to happen in a school, but it's especially scary for it to happen in a movie theater or in a uh, grocery store. In a school, at least you can have plans and policies and procedures in place. At a supermarket, you have no idea who's coming in, who's going. You have no idea what kind of skills they bring or abilities or or weapons they may be bringing in. And then you don't have, you know, you can only train the employees and not like in a school where you can train the, the employees and the people who are coming every day. So it seems almost insurmountable to be able to have an effective plan in place for a place like a grocery store. Um, let's let's talk about that holistic approach. Um, we talk a lot about the cyber stuff, but I think that understanding that there's a, a wedding between the physical and the virtual as you're talking about security, can you kind of explain that idea to us of what that means when you combine those two? Well, integrating uh, technology and physical and operational security is lacking not only in, in the public life, but it's lacking in every every industry across the spectrum. Um, for instance, I've worked with groups that have 27 to 400 facilities across the United States. And my, you know, I am a little cheeky, so I call it Frankenstein because they don't necessarily have processes across the board. So when you're talking about an enterprise-wide program, that means you use the same vetted vendors. You don't have one major brand in Denver, and then you go to New Mexico and you use a mom and pop shop. And that's not necessarily how you develop a holistic program. Um, you have to train, you have to combine training, technology, and as, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Jethro, are you part? So Frederick is, and basically what we do for almost every job is have a multidisciplinary approach. We have to look at things when we develop a holistic program for a school, you're not only looking at technology, you're looking at operational security, emergency operation plans, recovery plans, reunification processes. All these play into the uh, program, but also our job at ATAP is we're teaching across the board how to get left of bang, meaning we're always waiting for the gun to show up, whether it's at a school, a church, or a or a movie theater. We want to make sure that if you hear something, you're, you have a internal threat management team, our threat assessment team. And what Dr. Lipson and guys like Frederick do as lawyers and doctors, we want to make sure everybody and what you guys are doing here with your podcast is you are educating the people we can't reach. And we have to make sure parents are involved a lot of people ask me, you know, high net worth individuals ask me when I'm developed, you know, when they go to taking their child to a school, they ask me, what should I do? I said, ask about their security plan. Make sure that you understand what your role is. Well, Vern, if, if I may, this seems like a really good opportunity to touch on something that we're hoping to delve into more deeply, which is the relationship between physical security and cybersecurity. So can you talk a little bit about that relationship? I mean, even something as simple as making sure that your doors are locked or that your computers go blank within a certain period of time, or you know, there's some control in terms of USB port access. These are all things that people need to understand play into cybersecurity as well. So um, we do a thing called red teamwork. 
where basically we are paid to break into a facility. I love my job. I get to break into things and <laughs> obviously there's uh, there's conditions. We can't break it. I'm having a Robert Redford Sentry's <laughs> flashback. <laughs> so those are the perfect examples of you can't have just firewalls because if you may have the greatest firewalls and the best cybersecurity in the world, but I can almost break into any facility, whether it's um, by a ruse where I'm a janitor and I come in or I just come in with a, I look like a, uh, I tell everybody my favorite line is I'm an insurance salesman and I have a clipboard. I look the part. I've walked into pharmacies where they have restricted drugs. I've walked into places because I look like I belong. And you cannot have a red team where you're not testing both at the same time. So I bring in experts like you where once I break in, our, our little motto is I leave a purple dinosaur on the keyboard, but I break in, then they do their thing and then we leave. So that's a perfect example of you have to have both. You, you can't have one and not the other, if that makes sense to you. It absolutely does make sense to me, Jethro. Yeah, I think what what's so fascinating about that is that simple thing of you have to look like you belong there. And one of the things that that we did for our training in our schools was, well, and not all schools were the same, but some schools required you to wear a badge. And if you weren't, then you had to have a visitor badge on. And um, if anybody wasn't wearing that, you know, our process was to walk with that person back to the office to get them checked in so we knew who they were. And it, I, I have found it so easy as I've worked with schools to find a way into the school that is not through the main office. And it's, it's frighteningly easy for people to do that. And if you, if you act like you know what you're doing, um, you can completely ignore everybody there and they'll probably ignore you too if you look like you fit in. And, and that's, that's a piece where you've just got to have something in place to check on people. And, you know, what I told my teachers is say, Hey, nice to meet you. I don't know you. I'm so-and-so. Can I help you find something? No, I'm good. I, I know what I'm looking for. I'm like, well, I don't see a visitor badge. So come with me to the office and let's go get you a visitor badge and make sure you're checked in appropriately. And that's, that's a really non-threatening, easy way to do it. That makes the person feel welcome and makes them feel like they, like they can be there and not something that says, we don't know you, therefore you must be bad. Because I think that that other extreme is is a problem also. What's your thought on that, Vern? I, I think that's a good point. And you know, this is all part of the training program and getting the training is not just for the teachers. It's If you don't get buy-in from the top down, programs don't work. They fall apart because if you have an administrator or a principal or somebody that says, you know what, don't you know who I am? I belong here. I'm not wearing a badge. I don't have to do that. So if you have that thing, it just kind of flows down and other people start having the same kind of attitude where I don't want to do what, you know, if you're not doing it, I'm not going to do it. So it has to be taken seriously, but badges are a great piece of the puzzle, but you can bypass it. You know, there's a thing called probing. It's um, if I'm going to do something within a facility or a school or a church we're watching you. People are surveilling you. So this is where it's important to have surveillance detection skills of, you know, does that person belong? Teachers and principals 
you guys know your environment. You know who belongs. You know who doesn't. You know if a box is in the middle of the hallway, it probably doesn't belong there. So just having that awareness is, is part of the training. And I think you just need to enforce and teach people how to confront people. You can confront people nicely, but then you can change your tone. And teaching teachers how to do that is you make contact, but you do it politely. Sir, if your badge is facing the other way and it's a visitor badge, I've done that before where I just have a piece of paper on my neck and I, um, I have it backwards where you can't see it, but I walk with authority and I will get through most of the time, 80% of the time. So I think it's just a training policy of how we're going to confront, but you got to give them the confidence to succeed and give them those skills of how to confront somebody safely. And um, if once you do that and you, you're empowering your teachers to uh, do something safely, I, I think is a good, uh, good start to that. Vern, it's really fascinating to hear you say that because, uh, you know, I think what you're really getting at is a concept that we talk about on this podcast, which is developing a, a, a culture of cyber safety. That is to say, an awareness on the part of the whole sc- school community about what's taking place. And obviously, it applies offline as well as in you know cyberspace. So, if, if I could change gears just a little bit, because there's something that that I'm curious to get your thoughts on, which is the role of social media and personal privacy in the security business. And given the fact that you've had an opportunity to work with some high net worth individuals, what do you do with their competing impulses to remain private and also to use social media basically to build their brand? And I'm, I don't think that you did, but in case you did, you don't have to disclose it, that you worked on the Kim Kardashian case in Paris, where she had put out some social media posts and had a robbery occur basically as a result of that. Um, And the reason I think this might be relevant, hopefully, to some of our listeners is that, you know, this balancing of privacy and social media is a constant dilemma for parents and their children. So let's start at the very high end and then work our way down. <laughs> okay. Um, so, yes, we do a lot of celebrity um, stalking cases, death threats, um, hate crimes. Uh, that was a big thing over the last year. And I, I think it's become more prevalent due to the fact that we have more access to technology, better access. And they're using how to learn it. And they're becoming very aggressive. The And I'm, I'm talking about the, um, the bad actors, you know, that are especially in this, the cyber is something that is fascinating to me. I am not a cyber expert, but I hire guys like you that are. And that's important for the multidisciplinary because you can't have one without the other. It'd be like me asking you two guys to go to Columbia with me and we're going to go take a CEO into park territory. It's not fair to ask you that. (laughs) So asking me to be (laughs) Ludicrous beyond belief. Thank you, Vern. <laughs> so I want to, you know, so I think a lot of this, they're becoming really aggressive with uh, celebrities because I think they're being able to focus on them 24 hours a day. When we get a stalking case or a cyber case, cyber bullying for celebrities or now influencers, the people that are on YouTube, they're celebrities and they have millions and millions of followers. 
And so we got to be very careful. Uh, you know, if, if we go to a young girl that's 18 to 25 years old and she's a, uh, you know, an influencer, um, this is this is where it's very delicate with clients is, you know, they they got to be careful, in my opinion, and trying to stay very neutral here, because when I, I have clients that try to recruit me into their belief and my job is not to be a political person in this thing. And my job is to give you the facts and help you find a way out of a problem. So a lot of the times we're looking at somebody that is very aggressive towards other people in the call out and cancel culture. And then when they're targeted, it's a different world. And when you have, you know, what scares me the most about cyber is not necessarily the, um, I'm sure you've heard these terms, Jethro, hunters and howlers. There's a lot of howlers out there. And when a young, you know, when we do a uh, threat management case, my job is to do the background and try to find out who this person is. As we know that just because you your profile says you're a 16 year old female doesn't necessarily mean you are. So my job is to find that person and find out who they are. Do they have a background? Is this something normal for them? Especially in the celebrity world, they usually jump from one celebrity to the next, depending on how far they can get within their their world of being a celebrity. And that's what they want. They want to be attached to some celebrity and be famous for five minutes or 15 minutes, even if it's going to court and being in the same courtroom. Yeah, that's that's so fascinating. And there are social media platforms that facilitate that kind of connection. So for example, there's this, you know, relatively new one called Clubhouse and you have to be nominated to be in that. And you can go find someone famous, see who nominated them, see who nominated them, see who nominated them and find out the people who that person is connected to and build this this web that to me for someone especially someone famous really seems like a like a security threat that you you know who they're connected to in a way that is intimate enough that they have their cell phone number in their phone as well. And, and that kind of stuff to me is a little bit frightening because, you know, I'm certainly not <laughs> famous or anything like that, but I can only imagine, you know, if, if somebody doesn't like something I say one time and then they can find a way to, you know, connect with me and, and become a hunter instead of a howler. And that's, that's, what's, what's scary. And I, I don't think that that happens to most people, correct me if I'm wrong, but most people can, can post and be fine. But especially as you're doing threat management, as you mentioned, what are some of the things that you look for that you would say, these things need to be cleaned up to protect yourself going forward? Well, let's let me back up one second. It's a, uh, so there's, this, there's part of this cancel culture that when I'm watching these posts, so you have a person that has 15 million followers and a lot of the people that are trying to tear them down to get their following. So they become very aggressive. But what I look for in the periphery is somebody that is kind of looking for a cause. And they're also, you know, they're looking to be part of that. And that's, those are the people that scare me probably the most when I'm doing this because they will jump in out of nowhere and then when I track them down, they are not who they say they are. And you know, those are the people that I, I am, I'm concerned they're going to show up at your house because in the council culture and the call-out culture, they're, they're sending people's addresses. 
So when they know where you live, now your whole profile changes. Now here's where the, the physical and the cyber interact is I have to harden the target. And I'm going to let Fred continue to investigate the cyber to make sure that, you know, hardest part is teaching people don't turn off your social media. I can't track somebody if you completely block them. I want to make sure I know what they're doing, what their next move may be. So some, you know, we have a very unique group. I have uh, guys like Fred that are uh, certified forensic examiners that we can build websites that look like million dollar fan sites and they have 10 million followers, but these guys are specialized in crimes against children where they can get on and follow and, and actually elicit information that uh, Dr. Lipton and I had a case that went on for two years and we followed him literally around the world and we were able to stop him every time he came to where our clients were going to be. So you have to harden the target and we can talk about that, you know, a little bit later when, you know, the, your audience, the more, you know, the private sector is listening of how to harden their target a little bit more because of social media and things that how I find people and how they find people. I've actually talked to, you know, when I do the knock and talks, interview these uh, stalkers, some of them are not bad people. They just have some problems. And I'm able to find out what did you do to find this person? And they tell me. Uh, so that just makes me a better investigator and a better threat manager by being able to talk to these people. Well, I think that this is really actually a fairly important message for the parents who are listening to this, because one of the trends that I've noticed in the cyber traps research I've done is the growing interest in young people in trying to emulate the influencer career or to join the influencing community. And we can have a philosophical discussion about the social efficacy of that and its value in the broader sense. But the real issue, I think, is that it sometimes is pushing children to do things that are profoundly risky online. And so when we talk about hardening targets, it's not just hardening organizations like businesses or schools, but it's also hardening the social media accounts and presence of our children and teaching them the skills to recognize potential problems. I think one of the reasons I'm so fascinated uh, about the advanced threat assessment work that you do with Glenn is that you're merging this psychological piece with this real world security aspect. And I would, I'm not a trained psychologist, so I have no valid basis for saying this, but it does feel to me like social media has exacerbated a lot of the psychological issues that we see in the world and makes your job more difficult. Thank God for Dr. Lipson. Sometimes I think he's evaluating me more than he's evaluating the other people, but um, <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised, but that what's, you know, having doc around keeps, keeps, uh, you know, we have to understand where our lanes are, where my limitations are. I'm a security expert. As much as I've learned from Dr. Lipson and other you know doctors that I work with, um, we have to, you have to have that uh, collaboration, and that's becoming more um, prevalent with schools where you know we're we're dealing with kids that are being uh, stalked, and or you know we can start moving into that direction of helping schools be more preventative and become you know get out of that reactionary mode and get into the into the how do we, how do we monitor kids that say something just because they say it doesn't mean they're going to do something bad but we need to be able to follow it 
and how to um I did a um, lecture in uh, Lubbock, Texas for a group called the Navigators. And basically what I find when I go to churches, schools, is they they tend to hire people within their congregation that will do something for free, or they will hire the gym teacher, or they will expect an RSO to be a security practitioner. They are, that's not their job. And as much as they wanna help and do the right thing, some of them may have the skill set. I'm not saying they all don't, but most don't have that skill set. So you have to bring in people and make sure they understand how to harden that target. And it starts off with a threat and vulnerability assessment. From there, we're not only checking physical, we are checking cyber. We are checking, do we have any concerns and or people of concern and um, start teaching them to have like Dr. Lipson volunteers for the San Diego uh, district attorney's office, where he does a public private collaboration where they are assessing a threat of an individual threats against the school or another child. And to my knowledge, they've already uh, legitimately stopped two active shooters within the uh, San Diego. And uh, we're friends with those people there are doing wonderful jobs between the district attorneys and the um, and their their vision of being able to have a multidisciplinary team at a level that they're stopping shootings. That is really impressive. Um, but what they're also, you know, those type of people are when I was in Lubbock, I met uh, one of the captains of DPS and Department of Public Safety, they're the uh, agency that regulates law enforcement through Texas. And they came up to me afterwards, after I talked to them, what they need to understand about threat assessment and how to use that threat assessment as a tool and not a critique. We're not critiquing something because we want to embarrass anybody, but we're showing you the holes in your entire program. That means your cyber program, your threat assessment program, and your physical and operational, do you have a plan? And um, when we asked, when I go in to do a training for a school, I asked them, what is your plan? Because I'd like to build on a plan versus starting from scratch. If you have something, I don't wanna destroy it and say everything's wrong. We look at what's good, what's bad, and how we can make that better. And uh, I, once I did that, um, the DPS guys come up to me and said, we got to rethink what we thought we knew about school security and church security because we really don't know anything. And they just were missing a few tools and we got them to join ATAP. Yeah, that, you know, the, watching watching the work that you and Glenn have done over the years has been fascinating. The, the perspective that I bring to it, and I, I know Jethro, we've talked about this as well, that the, the challenge of effectively and legally and ethically monitoring social media and then figuring out how to give it the appropriate weight is an ongoing challenge. Can you talk a little bit about that? Where, I guess the basic concept I've heard is you take everything seriously and go from there, but are there specific tips that administrators can keep in mind? And can I add to that question? Is that all right, Vern? Um, so as a principal, I've dealt with several instances where there's been a threat against the school. And the scariest one was with a student that I didn't know, no idea like what could happen. Every other one, I knew exactly who the kid was. And I could pretty confidently say 
this is this is not a credible threat just because I already it was. I still needed to take that seriously, and I did, and I followed up and and took care of the situation, made sure that it wasn't notified law enforcement, all that kind of stuff. But um, but it was really scary when I had no idea who they were and couldn't already say. I'm confident that we're going to be safe, but this is a serious situation. And so can just wanted to add that piece into how you answer this question. Cause I think a lot of principles are there also. Yeah. I think that's a double-edged sword though. Um, we become jaded when you think, you know, somebody and you're not getting the context of did something happen between last time you talked to this kid or last time you knew about something has something developed because, um, you know, part of this is called leakage. And if we're seeing something that he starts saying something different, you know, and what are you making your baseline? I know this kid, I've known him for five years, but sometimes you have to step out of that because, you know, I, uh, there's a couple of behavioral mental health organizations that I work with and they're very bad about becoming dark and jaded because somebody will say something and I'm looking at them like, are you kidding me? And uh, for example, they're in a um, large um, group uh, therapy session, and somebody calls it uh, the suicide tip line and says, I'm upstairs in your conference room. There's 30 people here. I'm going to kill everybody. That's like going on a plane and saying, I have a bomb. You just can't do that anymore. And I asked them what they did, and they're like, nothing. That's just Bob. And I said, well, what did you do? Well, we sent one of the new interns up there. And I said, did she go? And they look at me and I'm like, no, you guys can't do this type of stuff. So we really do have to step back and say, I knew know this kid because we really don't know what's happening right now. And that's why we say when you start the threat assessment process with somebody, you can follow somebody for two years of their high school life and never have an incident. Uh, some places I've heard that are really doing good things and they'll, if they have a person of interest like that, they will follow them for two years after they leave high school, monitoring their social media, just because they've given them enough, but not quite crossed that line yet, which I think is very important. Well, this brings us back, I think, Vern, to this concept of uh, the culture of cyber safety, right, within a school community, because one of the things that is persistently challenging is that for both legal and practical reasons, it's almost impossible for school administrators like Jethro to constantly monitor all of the social media posts that kids are putting out there. So in order for there to be an awareness of potential threats, it seems to me that you need to educate the parents, the students themselves, the educators, to all be on the lookout for things that might be of concern and that's also a source of information, as you're saying, as to whether or not someone has changed over a period of time. Because it seems pretty consistent when you look at these cases that there's usually some kind of spiral that is noticeable to somebody um, or, or somebody is aware that there has been some alteration in a person's makeup that contributes to whatever the event is or the threat is. And we're not just looking at it as, you know, an active threat. You know, th these are something that with schools, I've learned that if I'm going to teach a teacher something, you know, a, a operational plan or a emergency operational plan, you can't just make it about worst case scenario. 
you know, so many things happen within a school that we have to teach and make people understand. Oh my gosh. Um, I think we, at one point we were talking about, let's train, you know, um, it's like a technology for me. I will never introduce something to a school that is only about active shooters because that is so small of, of a chance that it's actually going to happen at a school. So let's make this broader where if I'm going to give you, for instance, communication is horrific within schools, churches. I ask them, what's your, what's your mass communication plan? Oh, we use email. So you're checking your email as you're teaching all day long. No, I get to it like every two days. So how's that going to help you in an emergency? So if we're going to introduce a, a communication platform, I want you to be able to use it for severe weather, for mass messaging to parents, to use it where you're using it every day and it's, you can justify the cost. And I found a couple of good products and that's part of my job too. It's not just my handsome looks that people hire me for. Sometimes it's my network. And most of it's my network. Let's let's be honest. I have a face for I have a face for radio. <laughs> well, you know that's actually I think a brilliant way to approach it because you need to build what I would call the institutional muscle memory for these things to be effective. It has to be woven into the structure of the day. And you're absolutely right that if it's a, a Facebook page that the school runs that you check once a week, or it's email that you might get through every three or four days, and even then you've got 50 or 60 email messages that you can't process, you're, yeah, this totally makes sense. And it's got to be something that is regular and, um, you know, not confrontational, but in people's faces in a positive way. Well, ask Jethro, you know, Jethro sees this probably more every day, domestic violence, child custody, bomb threats, missing or abducted childs, medical emergencies, utilities, you know, unknown people on the site. What are we doing for that? How are we teaching teachers to deal with that? Because that's what they deal with 99% of the time. So my approach is active threat, not active shooter, but I want to make sure anything they're being taught is what they're dealing with every day and not a broad stroke. You know, we see a lot of trainings that it's run, hide, fight, which is the government's motto or their mantra, and which is fine. That's what you're going to use, but build a program to that. We want to make, but I customize every school. I go in there the day before, I go look for prop doors. I look for everything wrong. And then the next day we're showing it to them and everybody's looking at the teacher and like, that's your door. And they know they go out and smoke out that door and they put a rock in it or chair in it or whatever the case may be. Yeah. So this is one of my pet peeves in education. We've done all this training over the last several years about active shooters and how we have to, you know, keep doors closed and kids aren't allowed to wear hoods because they could be hiding something under there. They're not allowed to wear hats because then we can't identify them. Then the coronavirus hits and it's like, okay, you got to open up all the doors all the windows so that there's free access into the school at any point and everybody has to wear a mask. And, you know, three months ago we were fighting about how kids can't even have their hoods up in school. And what you're saying is so, so valuable because if you are just training for an active shooter situation, you are missing a whole bunch of other things that should be part of that same training. 
And I love what you said about that, that it's an active threat because it could be about anything. And when you bring in, you know, I was in Alaska, so we had earthquakes. And so you need to have a way to communicate if there was an earthquake and, you know, things were shut down. You had to be able to have that plan in place. But if you use the same thing that you're using to communicate about all the other problems that you're having, then it's actually going to be communicated. One of my favorite worst examples was we had a document that said, if there's a bomb threat in the school, then the secretary needs to make an announcement that says the superintendent left his briefcase in one of the classrooms. So everybody look for a briefcase. And that is to me like the stupidest thing in the world because it's not even real. It's never going to happen just like that. And if somebody is able to actually calmly say, the superintendent left their briefcase, who would ever say that over the intercom anyway? But if somebody could calmly say that while they know that there's actually a threat, that there's a bomb in the school, then that is just crazy to even think somebody could be calm enough to rationally say that. And so it it goes back to having a good plan, being clear and being able to talk about what is actually going on. I apologize for my soapbox there for my burn. (laughs) No, no, that's uh, this is all fun stuff for us because um, we teach real speak. And we have fun with the teacher because if, if you don't make it light, this is a serious subject, but when you're training somebody, we get them out of color codes, even like the, you know, the behavioral mental health groups that we work for, they have to have a card. It's a code orange. It's a code blue. It's code orange. And they're arguing about what code they should put on the speaker because, well, I thought orange was this. I thought blue was this. I thought brown was this. And the joke is, if there's an active shooter in, in the facility, he knows he's there. So we have an active shooter at the front of the building. You know, so, so we teach not only that, but we teach them how to talk to police. You know, we teach them observation skills. Uh, I have a no kidding CIA guy that used to be a spy in his younger life. And he teaches observation skills because, one, people really bad. They're really bad at observing things. And when they observe things between the three of us, you know, we will do an exercise where I want you to describe me and they, and we go, everybody gets a pick. So we pick one person, describe Vern. He's tall. He's got a belt buckle. He's got brown shoes. He's got, and then we say, okay, now we're going to call the police. So we're going to tell them we have a tall guy with a belt buckle and brown shoes And we ask them, do you think they could find that person? So by the time we're done, you know, we teach them realistically what they should be looking at and how to describe a person and not, you know, and not be, we are not politically correct because you cannot describe people, you know, and say, well, he's (laughs) presenting as X and he might be this. Police don't want to know that. They want to know what's going on right now. And what am I getting into? Yeah, that's not the time. That's not the time I would I would concede for political correctness uh, for sure. Um, well, you know, this is really fascinating stuff, Fern. I think that you know the the issue of getting people to respond effectively is really hard these days, though, because there are so many events taking place. I mean, do you run into burnout? How do you how do you confront that in in an organization or? you know, even a school that you go into? I, I, the hardest part is when they've had a bad 
uh, experience with a trainer and then recovering from that, you know, because, you know, again, it's one of those things is I can't be everything to everybody, but what I can do is I will never lie to a teacher. And when I talk to the administrators and to the principal, my, you know, I don't, I, I've been told, I don't want you to scare anybody. I don't want you to tell them the truth. I want you to do this. Right. Teachers are not stupid. You know, they are very well educated and they know, and I will lose complete credibility if I lie to them. They know if it's dangerous. They know, you know, we have to overcome some misconceptions. You know, it's not my responsibility. It's never going to happen here. You know, those type of things from some teachers. I would say 98% of the teachers want to learn something and they want to be safe and they want to feel safe. And if we are honest with them and give them realistic options and we have policies and procedures that come from the top down from a school and they're real with actionable procedures, um, sometimes I go into a place and their policies and procedures are 15,000 pages. And I asked the C-suite, are you, have you read these? And they're like, no, this is supposed to be for your people to read. And if they don't understand them and they, you can't retain 15,000 pages of policies and procedures. Well, those aren't for the teachers. They're for the lawyers. (laughs) Somebody got paid a lot of money to write those. That's what that was. Somebody got their second house with that one. Yeah, I, I want to go back in closing because um, we're just about out of time. I want to go back to hardening social media, hardening the target on social media, practical tips that people can implement. Could you talk about you know two or three things that everybody should do to harden the target for their social media pages? Uh, I I would say hardening the target for social media is making sure that the parents are aware of what their kids are doing. Um, One thing I've learned with schools is that uh, parents, some of them are not, they don't understand technology and they don't know how to get into their kid's phone. Their kids are way more tech savvy than the parents are. So there's got to be some educational pieces. This is where I think you guys are brilliant at helping people and parents understand what apps are on there and what they do. But I'm, I'm finding that a lot of them, when I've talked to them, they say, I don't even know how to turn on his phone. I don't know what these apps are. Where are his pictures at? Where are these at? So I think education and helping parents, uh, teachers are not necessarily going to be involved with that portion of it, but getting parents involved with hardening that by just understanding what apps and what their kids are doing on their phones is a big one. Harden the uh, cyber for just individuals. It's very difficult because everything's out there is public information. Uh, when I do a threat and vulnerability assessment, I have a I have a little game that I play with the C-suite. I tell them I'm going to run you for 15 minutes, open source, and find out what's out there on you. And I scare I scare them quite seriously by what I find in 15 minutes open source. That's not including the TLOs or the IRBs that are that cost money, but understand what's out there. And it's sometimes it's hard in the target of teaching your relatives because I don't necessarily find Fred through the first layer. I find Fred through his wife's sister's friend. And I know Fred and uh, his wife are on vacation because his sister shared that information. So sometimes your tribe, you got to be careful of who, what you're sharing with even you might be restricted where nobody can see your Facebook, 
but that doesn't mean I'm pretty good at this. So when I find out Fred's wife and Fred's wife's sister, and he's got three brothers, I look at them more than I do anything. And I, I, most of the time I will find what I need to know by other people sharing. That's really smart point, Vern. When I did, uh, Cyber traps for expecting moms and dads. One of the things I talked about were parents who made a conscious decision to minimize their children's presence on social media, which I strongly recommend for a bunch of reasons we've discussed. But every new parent needs to have a conversation with their relatives about what they will do vis-a-vis their child, because it is far too common for grandma or aunt or uncle to post the photos that the parents are consciously withholding. And, you know, it sounds churlish to do that, right? You're, you're saying to these proud family members, don't put my kid out in the world. It, you know, and there's nothing I'm ashamed of. It's just, I want to protect the kid. And, and we, we need to have more of those conversations. I agree with you. I, I get it. Parents are proud of their children, you know, athletics and in front of their schools. But when you're a high net worth individual, I have to teach them, Bad people are looking when you post that picture of the high school team and the mascot. I just found your kid. And if I take your kid, what are you going to do? Anything I want. Yeah. That is your most prized possession in the world. So we have to teach even high net worth individuals and celebrities. We get you make you, you make your living off of social media, but you have to do it responsibly and for the, with the safety of your children in mind. So those athletic pictures yeah. And even short of, of uh, you know, the, the worst case scenario of a kidnapping and ransom situation, um, all too often the information about the children plays into identity theft in terms of passwords and account names and all the rest of that. So there's myriad vectors for trouble to arrive from this kind of indiscriminate social media posting. Yeah, and there's there's things that they can do to start getting in good habits too for you know just for identity thefts. You know, one one big thing I always make sure in my assessment, I, I make people go to the smart911.com and sign up for those type of things. And I make them go onto Google and I make them blur their addresses. Um you you can do that. It's free. And um once you do it, it I don't know if you'll ever be able to take it off, but for celebrities, uh, that's how they find them. You know, I've had one celebrity this year that they were being stalked and they took a picture on their front porch with the address behind them. And I saw it, but nobody else did. And then I saw when they were rebuilding, they put pictures of their house under reconstruction and they showed the development. And every time I was able to pick up one more piece of how they found this person's home. Well, and then you get into geolocation information. The EXIF information that gets buried in photographs, sometimes you don't even need that, you know, photographic evidence, but it's part of the metadata for those images. And this is where the uh, technology and just physical tie together too. It's basic, silly stuff, trash, trash can discipline. What are you throwing away in your trash can? And as, uh, as an investigator, I've solved many crimes and cases by just dumpster diving where, you know, I figure out when the trash is coming there right after they take it out at six in the morning, I'm there at six Oh five and dump the whole thing in the back of a truck. And then we go cypher through it. And there's not much we can't find. 
And <laughs> that's that's a great note on which to wrap up this episode. In the trash. Of the Savage Cups <laughs> podcast, right, in the trash. And it is worth noting as we close out the show that uh, for those of you who are interested in some of the legal topics that pop up, uh, when you put your trash out on your sidewalk, the local police have every right in the world to kind of paw through it at their discretion because that is public property. And we analogize that to putting things on your social media streams. So let's have a conversation about that at some point, Jethro. All righty, Vern, thank you. So are you saying that our social media is trash? Is that what I just heard? I'm I'm happy to let you draw that connection. That's what I heard too. <laughs> yeah, it's always sad when you have to spell it out for the audience, but yes, indeed. <laughs> anyway, Vern, thank you so much for an entertaining conversation. Yeah, this was awesome, Vern. Thank you. Absolutely my pleasure, gentlemen. Keep doing what you're doing. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Let me just urge people, if you're interested in these trends, to check out the weekly Cybertraps Compendium on Cybertraps.com. Along the way, we will talk to our growing collection of international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. We hope you will share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have questions or topic suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. Though after this conversation, I'm thinking maybe I should change some things there. And (laughs) you can reach out to uh, Vern at abilasecurity.com. If you're still listening, you must have loved this episode like we did. And if you did, please leave us a five-star rating and review in your favorite podcast player. Thanks for being here, and we look forward to having you on our live show on Monday. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.